with me to Philippians chapter 2. And it is officially the month of March, which for many of you means March Madness. I know that you're excited about that. I had one conversation with someone this morning who in particular was, said, I'm ready, it's March, let's go. And uh, March Madness is a big, big deal here in Kentucky, but where I grew up in Pennsylvania, it was not a big deal. At least for my family, it wasn't. I know Villanova's won a couple times. They're in Pennsylvania. But, but I grew up not really watching basketball. My dad was never really into basketball. And so as you all know, uh, you typically tend to enjoy the things that your parents or those that you look up to enjoy. And so my dad was into baseball, and I'm into baseball. My dad was into football, and I'm into football. And my dad was into golf, and so I'm into golf. But I never really watched basketball growing up. I can't ever remember a time where I saw my dad sitting down watching a basketball game. We never played basketball. I never really was out on the court. Uh, maybe once or twice I picked one up and tried to shoot and missed. And so basketball is not really big for me. But over the years of knowing Josh, he has tried to get me to participate in the basketball league here at Fairdale. And so year after year, he asked me, hey, man, you can play basketball this year? And I said, no, nah, man, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to embarrass our church. But last year, for whatever reason, against my better judgment, I decided that I would do it. Maybe it's just because, you know, I'm in my 30s now. I need the exercise. So I decided to go out and play. And, and I can honestly tell you all that when I showed up for that first game, I knew next to nothing about basketball. And I, I see Ethan over here, he's probably nodding his head like, yep, I played with him. He didn't. And what happened, though, as I began to observe as the game was being played and I got to go in and I got to play a little bit, I started to pick things up. Now, I could have, before the season started, I could have sat down and read the rules and that could have given me an idea of how the game is played. But we all typically know that one of the best ways to learn is to observe, is to see other people playing to see it happening in front of us and just to kind of make mental notes and to see how things are playing out. And so this year, as we've started playing, I'm, I'm noticing myself that even just after a year and a couple games of playing basketball, I know a whole lot more now than I knew just a year ago because I've simply been there and I've observed. See, and Paul understands this too. Because here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church and he is telling them that they need to be unified. He says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so Paul is writing to the church and he is telling the church that the church needs to be unified. The church needs to have the same direction. They all need to be going the same way. And if you're going to do that, you need to be following after the example of Christ's humility. And so right after that, he goes into talking about the example that we have in Christ. And we see the Christ hymn that Josh preached on just a few weeks ago. But Paul knows that for me to just say, hey, be like Christ, is probably going to fall on some deaf ears. Some people are going to respond and say, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying here, but I, man, I don't really know how that looks in, in regular everyday life. I don't know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to be following his humble example when I go to work every day. Or I don't know what it looks like for me to follow Christ's humble example as a father or as a husband or anything else. Some people are going to think that. 
So Paul, anticipating these questions, says what he says here, beginning in verse 19. So let's, let's begin in verse 19, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. For I am the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here we have Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom Paul is, is placing forward to the Philippian church as examples for how to live with Christ-like humility. Paul has explained Christ-like humility with the Christ hymn. He has told us about Jesus and the way in which he is showing his humility. And now Paul is saying, as you are reading this letter, I want you to know that Timothy will be here soon, but Epaphroditus, who is bringing the letter to you, I'm commending these men as men that you can look at, you can observe, you can watch their way of life, and you can see how Christ-like humility is played out in, in, in an everyday life. Now, when, when we think about Paul writing to the church and telling them the importance of unity, it's important that we understand a little bit about the beginning of the church here at, at Philippi. If you look back to Acts 16, you don't need to turn there, but I'll give you a summary. In Acts chapter 16, we see the first time that Paul comes to Philippi. And Paul is proclaiming the gospel, and the first person that Paul encounters is a woman named Lydia. And it says that Lydia is a seller of purple goods. So in the ancient world, purple was the color of royalty. And so purple goods would be expensive goods. And so for Lydia to be a seller of purple goods, she's probably a wealthy person. And it even says in Acts 16 that she invited Paul and his companion Silas over to her house to house them. So clearly she had a house that was able to provide for multiple people being there. And it seems as if she even hosted the church as it began. So you've got Lydia, who's a wealthy business person. The next person that Paul encounters is a slave girl. And she, is, uh, she has a demon. And her owners are using her and her demon possession for, her, for their own gain. And she's being able to tell the future in some way. And they're profiting off of this. And so she keeps following along after Paul and Silas and says... Uh, you know, you all are followers of Jesus and, and you're proclaiming Jesus. And it even says that Paul got annoyed with her. And so he casts out the demon. And when the owners realize that they've lost their, their way of making money, they're furious. And they get Paul and Silas thrown into prison. 
So, but it seems that this slave girl is perhaps the next convert. Perhaps she was the next one who believed in Jesus as a result of Paul and Silas's ministry. So now we have a wealthy business owner, Lydia. We have a slave girl that we don't know her name. And then as Paul and Silas are in prison, it says at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns. And what happens is an earthquake happens and all of the doors of the prison are open and all the chains fall off and all of the prison guard is freaking out because he knows that if they escape, then his life is on the line. So he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. And then what happens is Paul leads the prison guard to the Lord and he and his whole household are baptized. And so at the beginning of the church in Philippi, you've got a rich business owner, Lydia. You've got a slave girl who was demon-possessed. And now you've got a, a typical blue-collar prison worker and his family. And that's the church. And if we look around the room this morning, our church is probably similar. We've got people from all walks of life. People that probably, outside of being here to worship Jesus, would never spend time together. Our interests are different, our hobbies are different, our way of life is different. And that's one of the really cool things about church is that we have a people that has come together because the only thing that we have in common is Jesus and that he has saved us from our sins. And that's exactly what happens in Philippi. You've got people from all walks of life that would have never spent time together, but yet Jesus has brought them together. Jesus has forgiven them of their sins He's washed them clean, and now they are together worshiping. But as Paul knows, there's going to be people who come in and try and disrupt the unity in the church. So Paul is, is appealing to the church. At the beginning of chapter two, he's saying, you need to be of one mind. You need to be unified. And the way that he's gonna do that is he says, you need to look to the humble example of Christ. And now in our passage this morning, we're gonna look at both Timothy and Epaphroditus and see what, what Paul has to say about these men and why he commends them to the church. So first, we come to Timothy. In verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So we know that Timothy is probably not going to be there when the church receives the letter. He says, I'm hoping to send him soon. And we also see in verse 23, he says, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So Paul is awaiting trial in prison, and Paul is saying, as soon as I figure out what's gonna happen with me, Timothy will be on his way, because I want you all to meet him. But also, notice what else Paul wants from Timothy. The second part of verse 19, he says, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. See, Timothy is not, he's not intending to send Timothy to stay long-term. He says, I wanna send Timothy so that you all can observe his way of life, but also so that Timothy can come back to me and bring a good report. Anytime that you're away from your church for any amount of time, if let's say this summer when Josh takes his sabbatical and is gone for a month, we will miss him. And, and I can be sure that he's gonna miss us too. I know he will. He's gonna wanna hear about how things are going. He's gonna wanna know how we're doing, how the church is, is doing, how the people are doing, people who are having uh, hardships in one way or hardships in another way. He's gonna wanna know how you're doing. That's just the heart of a pastor, and Paul is the same way. Paul's in prison. He loves the Philippian people. He cannot be with the Philippian people, but he desires to hear from the Philippian people. 
He desires to hear that they are walking in unity, that they are loving one another, that they are keeping Jesus at the center of everything that they're doing. So that's part of what he's sending Timothy to do. But now that also should remind the Philippian people that Paul genuinely cares for them. Paul, even though he's not there, wants to know how they are doing. So he's sending Timothy, but now let's look at what he says about Timothy. Look at verse 20. It says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. What a compliment. Paul says that Timothy is like no one else in the way that he will genuinely care for you. Or another way that we could understand this is Paul is saying, I have no one who will care for you in the same way that I care for you. Because the church knows that Paul cares for them. Paul began the church. Paul started the church. Paul was imprisoned in Philippi for the sake of the church. They know that Paul cares. And Paul is saying, I'm sending Timothy and I have no one else who will care for you in the same way that I and Timothy will. Now, it's interesting that he says he's genuine. He will genuinely be concerned, concerned for your welfare. When we think about generosity, and not generosity, sorry, being genuine, that's an interesting quality. Because at first meeting, you can't always tell if someone's genuine or not. People can fake being genuine. If I am meeting someone for the first time, surely I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to want to uh, you know, pr- pr- present myself as the best way that I can. I want to be cleaned up. I want to you know, speak well. We don't know that Timothy has ever been to Philippi. In fact, we think he is probably not. This would be his first time going to Philippi. And so Paul is saying he will genuinely be concerned for you, people he's never met. But now Paul is also saying that he's going to be concerned for them in the same way that Paul is. And this is important because the Philippian people would understand that Paul is genuinely concerned for them. They know Paul. They've met Paul. But Timothy, they've not met. Timothy, they don't know. And so Paul is sending Timothy simply on his own recommendation, but he's saying he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Are we genuine people when it comes to church? When it comes to just everyday life? Are you genuine when you tell someone that you want to help them? That, hey, if you need anything, you let me know. Is that genuine when you say those, those types of things? See, it's easy for us to act genuine at times when we feel like we should be genuine. But it's different from being actually genuine. See, we can all act genuine for a time. But how, how do you respond to the church? How do you think about the church when you're not around the church? If you see somebody has a need, are you wanting to go and to meet it? Are you wanting to be there to help in any way that you can? Or are you just thinking, well, not my problem. I don't need to deal with it. Paul is recommending Timothy as someone who is genuine. Now, if we look back to the beginning of chapter, chapter two, Paul says in verses three and four, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is one of the qualifications of being genuine, is that you're not just always thinking about yourself, you're thinking about others. Okay, he's saying that Timothy is going to have genuine concern for you. But look also at verses 5 through 7. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus and his concern for you and for me is genuine. Jesus doesn't act like he cares for us. Jesus cares for us. And he showed that not only by becoming a man, but also by being obedient to the point of death, which, which Paul says just right after this. In Christ's example of humility, Paul is saying Jesus is the most genuine person that has ever lived. He genuinely cared for people. If we look at his his life throughout the Gospels, we will see that over and over and over again, he was moved with compassion for people because he genuinely cared for them. He did things to meet their needs. He was never using his own ability as God to do miracles to benefit himself. He was always doing it to benefit others, to serve others because he had a genuine care. And Paul is saying, if we just try and act genuine, there's not going to be anything unifying about that. But he says, I want you to look at Timothy. Because Timothy is a truly genuine person. And he will genuinely care for your needs the same way I would. And Paul is saying, when you see Timothy, I want you to observe the way he cares for people. Because that's the way Jesus cares for people. That's the way Jesus loves people. Good to be genuine. God is calling us to be genuine. And when we have genuine concern for one another, it's going to help unify our church. But we also see a contrast to this genuineness. Look at verse 21. He says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, the first question that you're probably thinking is who is they? Who is, who is not seeking the interests of others, but only thinking the interests of themselves? Look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul is likely talking about these same people who are preaching Christ from a selfish ambition. They're thinking that there is a certain way in which they can pre preach Christ that is benefiting themselves. And this is a very real thought for anyone who preaches the gospel. There's a real temptation in me, speaking for myself, to preach in such a way that you all like to hear me, that you all want to listen to me. There's a very real concern for me to have a desire that you would like my preaching. And that we have to be careful as preachers not to preach in such a way that our goal is to get people to like us. 
And Paul is saying that there are people who are doing just that. And he's saying those are also the ones who are seeking their own interests. And he's saying to the Philippian people, you know who they are. And he's saying, I want to hold Timothy up in contrast to them. He's saying, you know who preaches Christ from selfish ambition. He's saying, look at Timothy. Look at his genuine care and concern for for you, for the people, and contrast that with those that you know are preaching Christ from selfish ambition. He's saying, don't be like those who are preaching for selfish gain. Emulate Timothy, who has a genuine care and concern for you, the people of God. One of the things that that happens if we all are seeking is we're not going to be unified. I was thinking about uh, the movie Mighty Ducks, and it's probably been a decade since I've seen it, maybe longer. But I do remember one scene where uh, they all are on the ice, and the coach puts a rope around them. He says, all right, I want you all to skate. And as soon as he says that, they all try and go their own direction, and what happens is they all immediately fall down. And then, of course, you know, they cut to weeks later, months later, however long it is. And before you know it, they're starting to learn how to all skate in unison. They're all starting to skate and go the right way. And they're able to skate without falling down. And it's that same idea that if all of us are only looking to our own interests, we're going to be like them falling in that pile. If everybody's trying to go their own way, it's not going to work out too well. But when we start to prioritize the needs of other people, when we start to put other people's needs in front of our own, that's when we're going to start to move. And that's when we're going to start to be unified. And that's when we're going to start to see God really using our church to reach our community. The next thing that we see that Paul says about Timothy in verse 22, he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. What we see here as Paul commending in Timothy is Timothy's humility. Timothy has submitted himself to Paul as a son would to a father, and he has worked side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Timothy is humble. Timothy is not always just wanting to be the leader. He's not just always wanting to be in charge, but Timothy is willing to submit himself to Paul's leadership. Now, humility is something that we also see in Jesus. Look back at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Talking about Jesus, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And what we see in Jesus is the exact same humility. Jesus is equal with God. He is God. But yet he did not count that as something to be grasped. Or another way to say that is he was not looking to his own interest, but he was looking to your interest and my interest. And because he was, he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. And this is what Paul is saying that the church in Philippi needs to do. And this is what Paul would say the church in Ferdinand needs to do. Let's not look only to our own interests. Look at what Jesus did. He did not look to his own interest, but rather he was looking to our interest. And that is why he came. That is why he took the form of a human. Paul is saying Timothy has done the same. Observe Timothy in his life. He's not just out there trying to be the leader, trying to boss everybody around, do what I say. Timothy is a genuine 
person who will humbly submit himself to serve others. These are the characteristics that Paul is holding up about Timothy and saying, observe Timothy. When he's able to come, look at him, observe his way of life, and emulate it. But now also, Paul reminds them in verse 24, he says, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Just a few thoughts about this. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I got in trouble a lot, and if my mom was the one disciplining me, it wasn't that scary. But when she would say, you just wait till your father comes home. Uh-oh, I've really done it now. Because I had a healthy fear of my father. And it's not that I was afraid of him, it's not that I didn't want to see him, but I knew that if I did something dumb and got myself in trouble, that when my father came home, he was not gonna let it slide. And I think Paul might be using a similar tactic here. The, the, the Philippian church does not know Timothy. They may be able to kind of put on an act and make him think that they're doing good, that they're all unified, that they're all doing great. But when Paul says, hey, I myself am planning to come, now they know, hey, yeah, we can't put on a show. Because Paul, as soon as he shows up, he's gonna know if we were or not. I think the church in Philippi has a healthy respect for Paul. And if Paul says that he himself is coming, they know that if things aren't in order, they need to get them in order. Because if not, when Paul gets here, he's gonna make it happen one way or the other. It's a loving thing, but also it's a good, good healthy fear that the Philippian church has. But now we look to Epaphroditus. I've had a lot of babies born in the church lately. This would be a great one if anybody's looking for one. Verse 25, he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, a couple things just about Epaphroditus. Uh, if we look at verse 26, sorry, verse 25 at the end, he says, my, your messenger and minister to my needs. So it seems that the Philippian church was aware that Paul was in prison and had needs. And so they sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul and perhaps to bring him some things to meet his needs. So the church, we see, they care about Paul. They don't find out that he's in prison and just say, hey, tough luck. They do what they can. Epaphroditus, we see you as someone who, who can be an accurate representation of us, who can be a blessing, and so they send him. And it seems that Epaphroditus is gonna be the one carrying this letter from Paul back to the church. We see that here in, in just a minute. But look in verse 25 at what Paul says about Epaphroditus. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Paul calls him my brother. That is an endearing statement. We, we probably use that term loosely, but to call someone your brother means that you've got each other's backs. You are in it together. If someone's gonna try and hurt your brother, you're not gonna let it happen without putting up a fight. It's a good thing to have that brotherly bond. And Paul talks about Epaphroditus as my brother. He says, fellow worker. So he's saying Epaphroditus is one who is also in this work. He's doing the work of the gospel. He's bringing the message of the gospel to people who have not heard it. He is one in one with me. He is a fellow worker. He's not just hanging out. He hasn't just brought the gifts that you sent with him and said, all right, my job's done. Paul, good luck. 
is a fellow worker. He is working side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And then he says, and fellow soldier. Y'all, the work of the gospel is easy. We know that because Paul's in prison for the sake of the gospel. There's a battle happening, and Paul's saying, Epaphroditus is fighting right alongside of me. He's not a wimp. He's not a wuss. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He is in it with me. He's a fellow brother. He's a fellow worker, and he's a fellow soldier. And then he also says, he's your messenger. He's the one that you all sent to me, and he is a minister to my need. You know, it seems that Epaphroditus is a, a pastoral type person. He's got a pastoral heart. He's wanting to minister to Paul's needs. He's a brother to Paul. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. And he's the messenger that the Philippian church has sent. We also know in verse 26 that he is longing for the Philippian church, for his people. It says in verse 26, for he has been longing for you all. And he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Longing is not a, a word that we use too often. But when I think about longing, I think about 2009 and 2010. I was still in the military and I was deployed to Japan. And I was dating my wife at the time. And when I left, it was initially just a, a six to seven month deployment somewhere in there. And we would be back in February of 2010. And so I remember we had just started dating at the time. We had been dating for, I think, two months. And so Skype was really the best way of communication that we had. And so uh, there was, I believe, a 15-hour time difference. And so right before I was going to bed at night, she was getting up in the morning. So we would talk for a few minutes. And then on my lunch break, uh, she would be getting ready to go to bed or, or something crazy like that. And so we would take every opportunity we could to just have a few minutes to talk. And I remember seeing her on the screen and just longing to be able to hold her, just longing to be able to smell her, all the different senses that I was not able to enjoy. Perhaps you felt a similar way. And I remember very specifically, it was Christmas Eve 2009 when they announced to us, hey, uh, just so you know, President Barack Obama has issued a surge of forces into Afghanistan. And so the people that were going to come relieve you in February, they're actually just going to go to Afghanistan and you're going to stay here. And so instead of coming home in February, we did not come home until May. On Christmas Eve, they told us. Can you believe that? Terrible. But here we are. We've made it nine years later, or we've been married nine years. However, 2010 was, I guess, 10 years ago. But you understand that feeling of longing. See, Epaphroditus had left the Philippian church to go minister to Paul, to bring some things, to meet his needs, but yet he is longing for the Philippian people. He's longing for his brothers and his sisters in Christ. He cares about them. Again, we see this idea of he's not worried about his own interests only, but also for the interests of others. And look at what he says next. He says, he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Paul says, he's distressed because you heard that he was sick. He's not worried about himself and his own sickness. He's worried that you know about his sickness and you don't know if he's alive or if he's dead. Remember, they don't have FaceTime. They don't have texting. It's not easy to get that information back and forth. 
And in verse 27, Paul tells us even more about the sickness. He says, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. Again, if you look down at verse 30, Paul says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is twice that Paul says that he was near to death. I don't think this is a coincidence. Paul is an intentional writer. He just got done telling us earlier in chapter two, look back at verse eight. And Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now twice, in talking about Epaphroditus, he says he was ill near to death. Paul is drawing a parallel. Paul is saying what we see in Jesus is a commitment even to the point of death. Jesus was willing to die to do what he was called by God to do, what he was sent by God to do. And he's saying, Epaphroditus, in the same way, he was ill near to death, but not just for the sake of because he was ill, he risked his life for the work of Christ. You see, he was ill, but that didn't stop him from doing the work that God had called him to do. And Paul is lifting this up and saying, look at the commitment that Epaphroditus has to serving the Lord. This is Christ-like humility. How devoted are you to doing the work of ministry? There's a lot of ministry to do right here in Fairdale. Because there's a lot of people here this, in Fairdale this morning that are not worshiping the Lord. There's a lot of people who are not in church. There's a lot of people who do not give one rip about anything that God has to say. How devoted are you to doing the work of ministry, to bringing the good news of the gospel that they can be forgiven of their sins? How committed are you to bringing this message to them? He's saying, look at Epaphroditus. This guy was committed even to the point of almost dying. That didn't even stop him. He's saying that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus did die. Thankfully, he did because that was for our benefit. He's saying Epaphroditus, just like Jesus, man, he is committed to the work that God has called him to do, and even death is not going to stop him. So Paul is, is lifting up these two examples. He's saying Epaphroditus, surely they've had their meetings, their, their huggings and, and loving before they've even read the letter, if he really is the one who brought it back to them. And now as they're reading it, Paul is saying, look at his life. He is displaying this Christ-like humility that I'm telling you to display in all of your lives that is going to bring the church together in unity. But also don't miss... God's mercy in this. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God. This is not something that, that Paul did to miraculously save Epaphroditus. It's not something Epaphroditus did to miraculously heal himself. It's not like he just pounded a couple uh, emergency packs and he was good. But God had mercy on him. 
and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul is reminding the church of Philippi that God is the one who shows mercy. God is the one who spared Epaphroditus' life. God is the one who showed, Paul saying, me mercy. Because if Epaphroditus had died, I would be experiencing sorrow upon sorrow because he's my brother, because he's my fellow worker, because he's my fellow soldier, because he's your uh, messenger and he's a minister to my needs. God is showing his mercy. God is showing us and reminding us that he is the one who determines when we die. God is the one who is able to show mercy. We need to be reminded of that all the time. We are constantly on Wednesday nights hearing about people who are sick, people with cancer, people with all kinds of different illnesses, diseases, bad things that are happening all around us, and we need to be reminded that God is the one who shows mercy. God is the one who can change that situation. He may not. We don't know. We don't know why he does some of the things that he does or doesn't do some of the things that he doesn't do. But God is the one who shows mercy. And Paul reminds the Philippian people that here with Epaphroditus. But so he says in verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with joy and honor such men. He says, receive this man with joy and honor him. He is an example to us. We are to look at his life and to see how we too can emulate the humility of Christ. The church is called to unity, which comes as each one of us lays down our own wants and desires and follows the example of Christ's humility. The same message that Paul is saying to the church at Philippi is the same message that you and I need to hear. The Bible is timeless. You and I need to know that to be a strong, healthy church, effective in doing ministry in Fairdale, it's gonna require us to be unified. And what's gonna, how that's gonna happen is by us following the example that Christ has given us. You see, but all we can do is read about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We're never gonna be able to meet them. We're never gonna be able to observe their way of life. But we live in a unique time in history in which we have so many lives that have come before us and even lives that are being lived right now as examples of Christ-like humility. This morning, there was a handout in the bulletin for the Annie Armstrong offering. And we've taken this for years upon years. It happens every time at Easter. And I just wanna read you just a little bit about Annie Armstrong. Annie was born in Baltimore at a time when there was little opportunity for women. And just so you know, she was born in 1850 and died in 1938. Yet her devotion to Christ led her to a life of service and leadership. She organized women to pray, to give, and to meet, needs, to meet the needs of those around them. She challenged pastors and churches to action and rallied vital support for missionaries. Ultimately, Annie was recognized as a national Southern Baptist trailblazer for her visionary leadership that still inspires millions today. And here are a couple of the things that she accomplished during her life. She started Bayview Mission for Baltimore's poor and addicted. She served as the first executive of Women's Missionary Union, the largest Protestant women's organization in the world. She led the formation of missions organizations for children. 
She raised support from missionaries to Italian and Jewish immigrants. She refused a salary because she would never give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. She initiated fundraising brick cards to build churches in Cuba. She gained support for the first black female missionaries. She secured funds to relieve China missionary Lottie Moon, who served for 11 years without a furlough. And she advocated for North Americans and impoverished mountain people. You don't accomplish any of those things if you are always concerned about your own well-being. If you're only concerned about your own personal well-being, your own personal thoughts and desires, you're not going to accomplish any of that. See, Lottie Moon is an, sorry, Annie Armstrong is an example of Christ-like humility. She laid down her own desires, she laid down her own wants, and she served other people. But even with Annie Armstrong, we, we can't invite her to come to our church so we can observe her way of life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, and we'll end with this. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in purity. Paul is writing to Timothy He's saying, Timothy, you as a pastor are to be an example for the church. Just last year, we moved to an elder-led church, and we have four elders, Josh Green, Josh Womble, Matt McBroom, and myself. And we don't take it lightly to be an elder. It's a big responsibility because God has called us to be examples for the church. And so what a pastor should be, what a pastor needs to be, what a pastor called by God is called to be is an example to the people. See, Paul sends Timothy and Epaphroditus because he sees in them Christ-like humility and he says, emulate them. And what God does for the church now in 2020 is he provides pastors And I think what Paul would say to us in 2020 is, look at them. Look at the way they live their life and emulate them. And I just want you all to know that's hard for me to say because that means I'm aware that you all are looking at me and my life and the way that I live it. And I know I speak for all of our other elders that are thinking the same thing. That's what God has called us to be. That's why we don't take it lightly to be an elder at First Baptist Feria, to be a pastor here. Because God has called us to live in such a way that we are exemplifying Christ-like humility so that the church can watch and observe us. And that's heavy. Pray for us. Because we desire, each one of us, to be an example of Christ-like humility. And while we are sinners, we will fall short at times. It is the goal that the trajectory of our life is one of Christ-like humility. But church, this is the way we become a unified body. That not just the elders are living a Christ-like humility, 
but all of us are. And we're in this together. Your pastors are here to help you do just that. Look at our way of life. Examine us and emulate us. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this hard and difficult passage where Paul is, is lifting up these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus for the church to emulate. God, it's difficult for me to even say it, but as a pastor in this church, on behalf of all of us elders, we know that we carry the same weight. You have called us to be examples to the church. God, would you help us to be just that? Would you help us to be walking in Christ-like humility so that the whole church could watch and observe and do the same? God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he took on the form of, of, of a man, that he was obedient to the point of death. Not near death, but death. We thank you that Jesus died, that he bore our penalty of sin on that cross but that he did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead. We thank you that Jesus is alive right now and indeed is interceding for us. And it's in his name we pray.